it feels really subversive to be able yeah. to go, look, I don't want a part of that system. I'm checking out. Um, you know, and, there's, and then you have a connection to your food that feels really wholesome as well. My name is Will Small. I use poetry to capture snapshots of what it means to be human. There's no better inspiration for this than real-life humans in their natural habitat. So I've been having conversations with all kinds of beautiful, passionate, interesting humans who all call the Central Coast home. From uni students to business owners, artists to activists, young and old. In each of these conversations, a poem is hiding. I'm going to find it and write it. And I'm inviting you to come along for the ride and hear the conversations that spark my creative process. Stick around till the end and you'll get to hear the poem. This podcast has been proudly supported by the Central Coast Council. Join me as I dive into the untold stories of coastal citizens and seek to capture them in an original piece of spoken word poetry. Dave Burlack, it is great to be hanging out with you this morning. Really appreciate your time and uh, it's a very cool space to hang out in here at Bohemian Traders. Uh, why don't you just give a quick snapshot um, to people listening of who you are, what you do, what Bohemian Traders is. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so Bohemian Traders is uh, the business that I run with my wife uh, who started it in 2014 uh, and so we've been running it together since then. It's grown and we're, um, yeah, we're just plugging away and I guess focusing in on what the core idea was when we started the business which was um, wanting to provide fashion pieces for um for everyone really the stuff that was fashion forward had you know had a bohemian sort of element um, but was based on classic cuts and that would work with her lifestyle as a young mum and just grown from there yeah very cool that's what our day-to-day looks like awesome people that seem ordinary often have pretty pretty amazing backstory um i think everyone probably does and uh, i met you a number of years ago you invited me to be a part of a, a backyard concert that you were running, which was really cool, just as a concept anyway, and to be able to come along and hear some music in your backyard, share some poetry. And we kind of got to know each other around that time. You were really into permaculture, which was mm. interesting. And then I've just seen some of the stuff you guys have done and continued to know you on a personal level. And I think you're a super interesting person. So I think other people would benefit from hearing a bit more about Dave. Well, thank you. Yeah, that was that was a fun time, uh, those backyard concerts. Uh, yeah. I haven't done any of those for a while, but... Yeah, I mean, the, the idea of backstory is really interesting to me um, and I suppose it becomes more important the older I get. Um, yeah, sure. And recognising the ways that uh, I've been shaped by the people that were either overtly or covertly involved in my life. Um, mm. So I um, grew up in WA. I was born over there. Um, down south and my parents, my dad was from Perth, my mum was from New Zealand um, and yeah, I was, was. we moved to Sydney when I was about 10, um, spent a few years there and then moved to the coast. So when I started year seven, so I've lived the majority of my life on the coast, um, central coast. Sure. So you kind of had childhood in WA and then yeah. when you're really, you know, coming into those teenage years, starting to develop a bit more of who you are. Yeah, that, that happened on the coast. What What were your like first impressions? If you think back to making that move across to the east coast, and then particularly 
landing on the central coast here. Mm. How did you think of this place as a kid in year seven? I think we were kind of excited by the prospect. Um, we'd sort of moved from a small town to Sydney, which was a massive, mm. massive thing. Like the town I was living in was called Bustleton in WA. It's about three hours south of Perth and it you know, has, I don't know, at that time maybe 40,000 people and sure. it was basically a holiday town. And then going from there to Sydney was, was pretty crazy. Um, mm. I suppose a bit of a culture shock. I feel like lots of my formative years were actually, well, I, I remember a lot of good things about growing up in the country kind of in WA um, and then moving up here to the coast from Sydney was uh, at first um, I didn't really, we didn't want to come up, the kids. I've got a brother mm-hmm. and a younger brother and his younger sister um, and we'd kind of established our lives in Sydney in that sort of period between moving from WA to Sydney and then mum and dad were moving us again but mm. Once we, once we got established here, I mean, we, we had a beautiful place to live. We lived down on the south end of the coast uh, in a place called Fegans Bay and there was plenty of adventure for my brother and I and my sister and we just spent a lot of time surfing and exploring the, the landscape, I suppose. Yeah, um, awesome. And I, I think that's always been a big part of my story is um and it's why we we mentioned earlier tim winton and he writes a lot about landscape as you know Mm. and how it's informs who you are and is almost a character in itself and um so i feel like when i read something like his i I can relate a lot to my story of exploring you know hidden worlds that when that aren't really that big but when you when you're a kid feel like the largest place ever yeah, it's full of unboundless or boundless um, opportunity. Yeah, so yeah, I remember reading like Tim talking about his connection to the water and how like so much of his well-being is tied up with how often he's able to get in the ocean. And I read that shortly after moving to the central coast from Canberra, and like pretty quickly, I felt probably not the same extent of that that he does, but like I never want to live apart from the ocean mm. again even though that's what, what my whole, you know, growing up until I was 22 or 23 was living in, in Canberra. Um, but the way he describes that connection to place yeah. is a great, like it, it sparks your own thinking yeah. about your connection to the For place sure. you live. It's, and there's that um, classic, you know, billabong ad, only a surfer knows the feeling, um, yeah. which I think sounds twee to, to a large degree, but there is that element of connection to the ocean Um and it's, it's interesting because my dad really loves Tim Winton's books as well. He grew up quite close to where Tim Winton grew up in Perth and when we've spoken about his connection to story and place, um, how that's flowed through to me in, in what has been largely a different place. I never really – we never lived in Perth. Mm. Um, but the connection and the lines that run through generations are really quite interesting. Yeah. And – had the same feeling that you just mentioned about, you know, being apart from the sea. You know, we travelled to Paris earlier in the year, my wife and I, which was beautiful and really amazing. But when I got home, I just couldn't wait. I just wanted to drive past the ocean just to yeah. see see the ocean. <laughs> yeah, wow. So how has your, you know, if you think about, yeah, from 14 to today, um, you've lived in this same sort of geographical area that whole time and now you're raising your own family here. Um how, how has it changed your relationship with the Central Coast or your sense of, um, you know, how you interact with the environment at this point in your life? Like, yeah, just how's some of your, your, your story of being tied up and connected to this place evolved over time? 
Um, I suppose it, it happens without you really knowing it. You start to, well, places become meaningful to you um, without you even realising. Mm. And and then you, years later, can have a memory about a place. You know, I've got memories about, um, you know, walking down into a surf spot in the national, in Budo National Park with my brother and my dad or, you know, getting dropped there in the morning and packing our lunch and just being gone for the whole day. Just those... Um, I guess they become nostalgic moments mm. um, as you think back and, you know, think about the difference um, from when you were young to when you were old, you know, that time of no responsibility and mm. where anything is possible and, you know, you're just li- living in the moment, I suppose, a lot more than yeah. what you end up doing as an adult. And so the landscape, I think, becomes a part of those stories and becomes a part of those memories. Um, and so on the coast we're, you know, so fortunate to have amazing national parks and amazing coastline. And so everywhere that I went, I guess, exploring as a kid um, just informed my um, or reinforced the beauty of the surroundings and the importance of caring for creation as an example, which carried mm. through into um my adult life. Yeah, yeah. When I met you, you were obviously um, doing all of this cool experimental permaculture stuff and uh, you kind of sparked a bit of that passion in me actually. I imagine a lot of people that knew, have known you and, and probably w- were around that time probably got inspired to plant their own little veggie gardens and things. But how did that um, – yeah, how did you get into that? Uh, it's funny. Growing up, I know that my parents – at various times had gardens and that kind of thing, but it was never a huge part of our lives. And I knew that, you know, back in the seventies, my parents were hippies and dad lived in a combi in the bush or something. And awesome, you know, grew his own food and that kind of stuff. But I didn't really um, get a real connection to that until I became, until my mid twenties, I suppose. Um, And I think it actually started with uh, River Cottage, uh, I don't know if you know Hugh Fernley Winningstall. He had a no. series in the UK, um, basically a, a chef getting out of the city to, right. you know, this Devon down south in the uh-huh. UK. And um, that kind of sparked, um, I suppose, a latent desire um, that mm-hmm. was already there and I just wanted to find out more. At the same time, I started reading a fair bit of uh, Wendell Berry and mm-hmm. um, authors that were really articulate uh, about caring for creation but also um, the importance of agriculture and how it grounds us and our um, connection to community. Mm. Um, and so uh, the way we produce food and being able to produce food for ourselves became a really intriguing and important part of um, understanding my own community and who I was and who my family was um, mm. and could be. Um, and then as you dig further into that, you know, rabbit hole, there's the questions around how the way we consume as humans is destroying the earth and how, mm. you know, agriculture as an example is, can be carried out way more uh, in a much better way than we do it now. Um, yeah. We've, you know, in the last 50 or 60 years, deviated so far from what was standard practice. Um, basically after Second World War when they had a, it's one of those random chance things where 
war produced a whole lot of stockpiles of potassium, nitrogen, um, that kind of thing, which are perfect for making fertilisers. And because they had no bombs to make anymore, it just moved into agriculture. And so all these chemical companies got involved in agriculture and that was the backstory of how we ended up with these massive broadacre monocrop yeah, you know, wow. monocrop farms that just that they treat the land like it's mechanical, mm. like it's just something that you can extract from and mine and, you know, natural systems don't work like that. Mm. Um, and so all of those things started percolating in my mind and I suppose the, the most um, radical thing you can do when uh, considering your own consumption is to, you know, stop being a part of the system. And so growing veggies and raising your own food, I used to raise uh, pigs and chickens and ducks and rabbits for meat and eggs and that kind of thing. Um, And it feels really subversive to be able to go, look, I don't want a part of that system. I'm checking out, Um, you know. And and then you have a connection to your food that feels really wholesome as well. Mm. Um, So it feels like you're, you know, fighting a battle on a few different fronts. Um, Yeah. And... Yeah, it's it's just really rewarding. So I guess so far we've heard a little bit about you and your connection to, to this place in particular. Uh, I'd love to kind of go a little bit deeper into some of the things that make you tick, you know, regardless of place. I mean, mm-hmm. place is always a part of us. Um, but, you know, thinking just about Dave, if you look back at your life and think about something you're really proud of, something that you would want to share that you go, you know what, this is something I did I was really glad to, to be a part of or to do. Mm-hmm. What comes to mind for you around that? Um, it's it's an interesting question. I, As I said earlier, I feel like the older I get, the more important um, the stories that come before us um, mm. are in our lives. And so my, my dad's parents were immigrants from Poland, so they moved to Perth not long after the Second World War. Um, you know, my, my judge, grandfather, had lost his entire family in the Second World War. My babunya had just come out with her immediate family and they arrived in Australia with nothing, basically. Mm. Um, and I think it's it's not until I've gotten older that I realised how that has shaped my view of the world um, and given me a, an appreciation for the, both their bravery and their hard work mm. Um and I remember reading an article by Frank Lowy recently talking about, um, you know, the idea of emigrating and how it is one of the most, it's one of the most brave and um, optimistic things that you can do as a person. You're kind of banking everything on something being different in the future in a different place that you don't know or understand at all. Yeah, wow. Um, and so, you know, they had my dad and his brother in Perth and, they both grew up going to school without speaking English. So they spoke Polish at home because they didn't want to teach them English with an accent. And um, so dad dad knew a little bit from his older brother when he went to school. But, you know, there was that um, immigrant mindset where they wanted to they wanted to become a part of the community mm-hmm. um, and they, they wanted to work hard to be um, uh, to provide value, I suppose. And so when I hear people... Um, you know, you hear lots of the tabloid press and politics at the moment around immigration and illegal immigrants or asylum seekers or whatever. And it just it jars with me because I see so many examples from my own history but also 
from so many people I've met that um, are amazing humans that have so much to offer our communities and I feel like we've lost a lot in sort of the social narrative that's been been happening over the last 10 years or so. Mm. Um, so I, I feel really blessed to have had that history and those stories sort of being told over my youth um, so, because I think it's given me an appreciation and a, a sense of connection to those stories. Um, yeah, I love that. I love the way that you, you know, I think uh, probably, you know, like a Western mindset is often you'd hear a question like that and think very individualistically, what's something great that I've done or something that I'm proud of? And I love the way that you answered that in a way that's bigger than you as an individual but about that that legacy that story that mm. you're just a, another page in that book. Yeah, it's it's that's it's an interesting idea. Like I've um, people often look at success. Um, and you hear like business people talked about as you know self-made men or self-made women. Mm. You know they've started with nothing and um, you know now look what they've created. Um, I don't know. I feel like that betrays your entire history. Like I think yeah. some people have started with really challenging circumstances, um, absolutely. Um, but, I mean, I, I couldn't ever say that I was a self-made anything if I was going to be honest because, you know, my grandparents moved here with nothing and, you know, worked three jobs to create a life for their sons and then my dad, you know, was, you know, got a scholarship to get into uni and, you know, whatever, had his life and worked hard for, for the family, for mm. my brother and sister and, and my mum as well, like created a life for us and created a framework of faith um, that was really important for our family and created, you know, um, a sense of what it means to be moral and ethical. Mm. Um, and so for me to say in any sense that I had created anything on my own would feel really arrogant mm. um, because if you stripped away all that stuff that undergirds me as a person, you know, what do you, what do you build from? Yeah. Um, yeah. We ride on the, on the shoulders of the past. And, mm. you know, I, I think a lot about the concept of grace. People might think about that in different ways, but for me it is, uh, yeah, the, the house I was born in, the family I was given, the skills I have, the, the things I'm good at, none of that was my choice. Mm. And so I'm really grateful just for the grace of it, just for the fact that, um, you know, I've got a, a history behind me that means I can live in a, in a place where I'm free to do things I'm passionate about yeah. and definitely want to kill that illusion that it's because I'm somehow amazing. Yeah, or, you know, that you even, even where it is, you know, you are producing something that's amazing and creative and, you, you know, the fruit of your own labour, um, you know, the, the opportunities to have done that and to even be able to think critically um, in itself is formed somewhere else yeah um you know i grew up with faith for example and i for a long time i guess my parents faith was my faith um but there be there comes a point that you have to discover that for your own and work out what you believe yourself um and how that's going to inform the way you live and without the ability to think critically you can't actually do that Hope you're enjoying this episode. We're going to jump back in in a sec and get to the poem coming at the end. But I want to share with you for a moment about the process behind the end product. At its essence, I think creativity is about trying to do things in ways that haven't been done before. Making a song that pushes beyond the edges of a genre. Or a film that disrupts what people have come to expect. 
Spoken word poetry and podcasting have both done that in recent years. And bringing the two of them together with authentic human interviews is my own creative experiment to try and mix art forms in a new way. Like any creative work, it takes some faith and risk as well as time, energy and resources. I have a small but growing community of people that see the value in this work and want to help empower me to create it. I want to ask you, is this something you would consider becoming a part of? You can read more about how it works at patreon.com slash willsmall, but the basic idea is to give a few dollars each month to help me create some predictable resources I can use to focus on bringing the work to life. I'll send you unpublished poems and reflections to your inbox every month, and you'll be able to contribute your thoughts and ideas to the ongoing evolution of this work. Thank you so much for considering joining the Poetic Beings Patreon community. I mean, going back to your question too about um, one of the most important things I've done was I would say in year 11 when you have to choose your electives um, for what you're going to study for the last two years mm-hmm. of high school, I, I was running I was two, two electives short or two units short and I just plugged the gap with what I thought was just going to be a cruisy, easy subject and I chose Aboriginal Studies. Right. Um, went to Henry Kendall High School um, and... I had no idea really how much that was going to change my life. Um, You know, it was the best accidental decision ever, I reckon, Um, because, again, in the same way that the stories of my grandparents kind of shaped who I am, learning about Australia's history um, I think has shaped my view of the world, like Australia's true history um, Mm. and, you know, the the shame around the way that, you know, white sort of uh, European people have treated our you know, Indigenous mm. um, brothers and sisters is, you know, it for, it informs what I think today and the things I'm passionate about. And you mentioned grace. I think our country and our, you know, local community really needs a lot of grace to get through what is, uh, you know, hundreds of years of hurt. Um, mm. And I don't think it's impossible, but it needs, you know, reconciliation requires a recognition that there's been wrong done and that, yeah. you know, um, you can't change the past, obviously. You know, we weren't even there for these decisions. But as beneficiaries of a white system, you know, I'm, I'm again, I'm a beneficiary of a education system that said I was better than a black person. I'm a, I'm a beneficiary of a system that said I... Um, was more privileged or was just automatically given privilege because of the fact mm. the color of my skin or my gender um, yeah. and you know being able to recognize that I feel is really important um, to it's a, it's the only place you can really start to have a decent conversation about these kind of things yeah absolutely so uh, I guess the flip side of the kind of things you're proud of uh, maybe a flip side, maybe related, but um, you know, I'm also always interested in some of the the most difficult stuff people have been through. I think that we're truly shaped um, by how we respond to the most challenging or the most uh, kind of suffering that mm-hmm. we face. Um, so, for you, like when you think about one of the hardest things you've been through that has shaped you, what comes to mind? Um. I feel like I've been so privileged in um, in my life um, that I don't I don't know that I've ever actually experienced any 
proper suffering. Mm. <laughs> Maybe I'm, you know, inviting some hardship in saying that. But Well, I feel the um, same actually, so I can relate to you. And it's kind of funny that I ask the question as someone who kind of feels like I'm constantly waiting for something to go horribly wrong. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. I'm far out, I've had a pretty lucky run. Yeah, well, I mean, look again, looking at my, you know, the, the life that my Babunya and Jaja led in, you know, losing everything effectively, you know, I heard there the story of, you know, how they escaped um, Poland during the war um, and got out to Australia. And it's it's just, I can't even comprehend some of that stuff. And there are people today still living that same reality in mm. many places in the world, you know. And then for on my mum's side where, you know, my mum's mum was basically a war bride. Um, her dad was a New Zealander and, you know, she got passage out to um, Australia Oh, sorry, to New Zealand to marry her husband and, you know, not long after realised that was the, a very bad decision. <laughs> and so I, I can't really even relate to anything like that. Mm. Um, I mean, in terms of things that have been challenging, you know, starting a business and running a business together as, as a married couple and parents um, and collaborates has been, has definitely challenged our relationship. Um, and it's you know, it's strengthened it, but there have been many times where it's been really difficult and mm. has really tested us um, as people and challenged the kind of people that we want to be, the kind of business that we want to build, um, the kind of marriage that we want to have and the mm. kind of parents we want to be. Um, and you, you've put yourself in a position where you're kind of responsible for other people as well in that. You've got employees, you're running something that's suddenly bigger than... Oh, for sure, you, yeah. So. Yeah, well, when we first started it, we... Um, it was ticking along nicely and we thought, oh, you know, there's enough here to pay the mortgage and, um, you know, the original idea was that the, the business was going to be M's thing and I was going to grow veggies and go surfing. Um, nice. and that, that lasted about a month, <laughs> <laughs> you know, from the time I gave notice in my previous job, that was July 2014, to when I finished with them in September, um, the business had tripled in size. So month on month it was wow. just growing dramatically and so... You know, every time we hired, we hired our first employee in Feb 2015 um, and, you know, ever since then it be, sort of every time you add a person it becomes more real. Mm. Um, and I'm desensitised to that to a degree now because we've got, you know, 18 or 19 employees but um, certainly there is that feeling of uh, being responsible for people's livelihood mm. um, and I, I, that, that doesn't scare me so much as just wanting to build a business that we can be proud of and that people are happy in and that feel stoked to be a part of what we're doing. Yeah. Um, you, you strike me as someone who, uh, considering, you know, you, you say that you haven't really uh, experienced much personal suffering, you've, you've got a lot of privilege, uh, like I said, I'd, I'd feel the same way, and yet you strike me as someone who's really empathetic and really in touch with, you know, a sensitivity to people who um, might not have that same level of privilege. Where do, you, where do you think that comes from? You know, when you haven't kind of personally experienced it, what gives you that kind of uh, open eyes to that in other people's lives? Um, I think this, the stories that I mentioned before, you know, recognising, you know, who's come before you and mm. what they've given up. Um, I, I think I developed a lot of empathy in you know the Aboriginal studies that I yeah. did in high school, um, and that wasn't just for Indigenous history. I think that expanded my whole world. 
um, to a degree that I didn't even or still yeah. perhaps don't fully comprehend. Um, and I think as well um, my wife is an incredibly empathetic and compassionate person way, way more than I am mm. um, and I reckon uh, some of that's rubbed off on me I think which is that's a good awesome. thing. You yeah. know, we've been married for 17 years in December and, wow. you know, I think some of the best bits hopefully have, have rubbed off. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. You know, I actually think you're a really good example of like a lot of the work that I do is helping people to understand the power of story uh, and as a poet, you know, helping people to understand that. Uh, and I've, I've been very influenced by Joel McCaro mm-hmm. in this regard, but we, our behaviour stems out of our internal narrative. And so everything that you're saying around, you know, you, you actually, your eyes are opened to true history of Australia and you can't go back mm. to living how you did before when you were kind of ignorant of that. Or your eyes are open to the stories of your grandparents and the suffering they went through. And the result for you is that you live with a sense of gratitude. I just think that you're, the fact that you're in touch with those stories is clearly uh, expressing itself in who you are, mm. which is a powerful reminder to myself and to anyone listening that, when we understand our stories or when we begin to reframe our stories, it actually changes who we are. For sure, yeah. And again, that feels like a massive privilege because yeah. so many people don't know their story um, because in I think particularly in Western culture, um, story is kind of undervalued. Um, yeah. And you, you see it in Indigenous history um, that story and their connection to earth and their connection to their people is just so ingrained um, and and it is what um, it's what Europeans in many ways use to destroy culture because they uh, maybe they explicit knew, explicitly knew I'm not sure but if you remove someone's story particularly for Indigenous people it completely destroys their understanding of who they are and I think it does the same for us it does the same for anyone yeah. we just don't realise it because in many ways um, we've been privileged enough to not have our history you know, edited yeah. um, in the way that many others have. Yep. No, that's such a good point and it must just be so disorienting. And I, I think, again, you know, our stories impact our behaviour. So often when we look, we look at the symptoms of uh, a group of people that have maybe higher mental health issues or have, you know, uh, substance abuse issues or whatever, and we just look at the symptom, but then you think how much of that comes from a disorientation from having your story mm, taken away from for you sure. and not being able to have a strong inner sense of security in that, that lineage of what's come before you. So, yeah. which again, it's, the, it's, it's dehumanizing when for we sure. take people's stories. Yeah, absolutely. And even, um, I don't know, even just with the fragmentation we've seen in our general society, um, with the move towards, you know, people becoming consumers and individuals more than the collective and the community, which mm. which is why I really love um, the work of Wendell Berry because he talks so much about uh, what it means to be a community and to be to have a membership of a community. Mm. Um, and I think about that in terms of seeing young people who are struggling or people who don't know what they want to do with their lives and it's it's really it's uh it's a symptom of trying to work out who they are um trying to work out you know because the story isn't there to inform them of who they are um yeah and and then and then the community i think has become so disengaged from each other um as individuals that we don't really have the connections in the communities that we used to Mm. um 
without sounding all nostalgic. I think that just just is a fact. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it wasn't perfect decades and whatever ago, um, but without the, that fabric, um, I think f- people feel a lot more adrift. Mm. Um, and you know, there's if the if the family's not there, then and the community's already fragmented. It's it's a real challenge. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing uh, some snapshots of your story, as well as just some you know great insights into the importance of this stuff. I actually listened to this conversation. I think yeah, it just reminds me. I want to I want to revisit my connection to place and to people and to story. So I hope that you know anyone listening to this has that same sense. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask you a string of uh, <laughs> uh, sort of spontaneous creative questions, mm-hmm. and I just want you to answer them just from your gut. Yep. But before we do that, just to wrap up this kind of conversation we've had, um, is there kind of a key lesson you've learnt, you know, in your life on this earth so far that you could kind of summarise in a, a sentence or two that you'd, you know, encourage people to think about further that's helped you? Um. Yeah, I suppose two things, um, and I mentioned my faith without getting all preachy, but uh, Jesus for me is is the um, is the central kind of defining guide in my life. Um, so that 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 informs really a lot of who I am. Um, but then I think the best piece of advice, or one of the best pieces of advice that I was ever given. Um, was when I was really interested in permaculture and, you know, it can be a bit confusing as to where to start and what to do and, you know, everything's so big and, you know, mm. challenging. Um, but it was a piece of advice that I think works for everything in your life and it was um, start now, use what you have, do what you can. That's um, great. Because if you do that, the possibilities just continue to expand. Love that. Start now, use what you have, do what you can. Yep. Awesome. So I'm going to go and write a poem about you, okay. uh, but before I do that, um, I'm going to I'm going to invite you into the process just a little bit mm-hmm. by asking you to think <laughs> in a, in an abstract way, just kind of like this is just rapid fire. Mm-hmm. Go with your gut. Um, all right. So if you, Dave, were a time of day, what time of day would you be? Six thirty-five a.m. And uh, at six thirty-five a.m what would be happening in the world of Dave in an ideal scenario? Uh, I would be in the ocean watching the sunrise with hopefully some swell and an offshore breeze. Beautiful. And uh, if you were an item of clothing, given that you run a, uh, a kind of, you know, clothing type business, what would you be? I would be a pair of jeans. Describe the jeans to me. Uh, pretty classic Straight leg, maybe a rolled cuff and just a classic blue standard wash. Very nice. And if you were a, uh, if I went into the garden of Dave <laughs> and uh, everything's set up very well, you know, some good closed systems, uh, what kind of, um, you know, vegetable or produce would you be? I love tomatoes um, and what they tell me about the abundance that is existing in nature. I remember hearing you talk about that before. I love that, that they just sort of grow beyond what you can yeah. consume yourself. Well, it's crazy. It's just a perfect example of uh, our of what we should see in nature as abundant versus what we often see as scarce. Yeah, you know? that's great. Okay, last question. 
if you were a piece of music, genre or particular album or song, um, I would be a jazz-influenced folk song. Awesome. We all start with story, but probably not where you think. No self-made anyone, we just continue the ink. Our lives start with commas, not capital letters. Dave digs fingers in the soil, reaching for these stories. Makes contact with the ground beneath him and the travellers behind him. The ones who left the loss of a world war to find feet on Perth shores, optimistic as believing tomorrow might just click into place like a jigsaw. Sometimes it does. That's the grace of it all. Untouched coastal landscapes for grandkids to explore. And even though only a surfer knows the feeling, I'm not one. When Dave's words trace the shape of past places, laced in nostalgia's embrace, I can feel the water. I can taste the salt. I can see where the bush makes way for the beach. I can see Dave, the sunrise, the swell in an offshore breeze. Familiar like a pair of classic blue jeans. A life wrapped up in nature, from the ocean to the veggie patch. His words are fruit from the seeds of all the small choices, even the books that he reads. Tim Winton, Wendell Berry, ones whose pens are plows, disrupting the ways we've seen the world break down. Like land treated mechanically, farms managed chemically, result of leftover stockpiles of World War weaponry. Ironically, modernity tries to force abundance with a scarcity mentality. Maybe tomatoes in our backyards could remind us of the Earth's natural generosity. Dave speaks of gentle subversion, the radical rebellion, of your own quiet extraction from the Earth's oppression, a little less food from the factory farm, and a few more seeds in your own backyard, a place to gather friends for jazz-influenced folk, Simple moments that remind us we need ordinary hope, the everyday kind, and when it's hard to find, take a breath and remember Dave's suggestion. Start now, use what you have, do what you can. You didn't start the story, but right now you hold the pen.